everyone, this is Jeffrey Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And today's topic is an interesting special one because we never really had a chance to talk to an expert, an actual practitioner in the space, which is how do we democratize access to healthy food, right? One of the things that I've talked a lot about is that our modern nutrition system is oftentimes solving the problem of the 1800s and previous, where food and food shortages, famine was the main killer of humans. And now there is not necessarily a dearth of available calories. It's how do we get actual healthy foods, uh, whole foods to people. And it's oftentimes a distribution, almost a economic logistic problem rather than the amount of calories. So today I'm really excited to welcome on Cole Riley, who's founder of Welfare, which is a leading nonprofit that's being stood up to help solve and address those issues. So Cole, Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to dive into not only what we're building, but talking more generally about the space. You know, we're not looking to just come in with a really effective solution to this problem. We're looking to kind of rewrite the rules on the whole space of philanthropy. And uh, I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, so let's get a preview on your background in welfare. Let's get the let the background out there first, and that will provide context for our audience here. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, the way I was thrust into this world, into nonprofits and into philanthropy was actually last year around spring at the peak of COVID here in the city around March, April. What I was doing at that time was I was trying to build up this creative agency here in the city, working with food and beverage brands and work had slowed, obviously come to a stop. Everybody pulled back uh, around March and I saw an opportunity and I was hearing chatter from a bunch of these founders that brands are trying to get product in the hospitals to support healthcare workers and support patients when those cafeterias were closing down, they were having trouble doing so. And so I knew all these brands here. And, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd volunteered before, like a couple of times here in the city with New York Cares, but I'd never done anything like massive, a massive kind of operation or done any type of massive philanthropic work. But I decided at that point, that was an opportunity to do something quickly and that was in need. And so, I pivoted and I launched a campaign called Founders Give. And that's how I got thrust into this space is that I started working with local brands, eventually started cold calling the Chobanis, the Kinds, the Nestle's, and essentially practically every major food and beverage brand in the country. And we became the number one relief effort across 10 weeks here in New York City, taking in food and beverage products and distributing them to hospitals custom where we could meet the needs of different hospitals, different sizes, and not just for healthcare workers. That got lost in the whole story. We were also feeding patients. So we became the number one relief effort, two and a half million products, 300 brands over 10 weeks. And once that campaign ended, the need had dissipated come around June. That's when I really started thinking and I started creating this team to sit around and think, what can we do here? There's an opportunity. There is an appetite from food and beverage brands to do good. There is obviously a, a bunch of extra product out there. And there's this big blossoming space of better for you food and beverage brands. But there's there's naturally, there's always extra product sitting around. And then, you know, these big players in food insecurity, the numbers are still the same. And if you just remove the COVID conversation from it, just the numbers are still the same year in and year out. 40% of food gets wasted. 35 to 50 million Americans are food insecure. And you grow up, you hear Feeding America, you hear these other organizations around, and you're and then you start, once you start diving into it, you're like, wait, what's going on here? Where's the problem? Just as a pure logistics thing, there's product there, there's brands that want to do good, there's people in need, why can't we make this work? And so we spent the summer and the fall, really, building out what is now called welfare. And the structure, the approach, the innovation, the disruption, and not only as a logistics operation to better effectively get products from A to B direct to need from DTC companies, but also to build a new type of organization, a new type of philanthropic brand with a, with a different type of ethos. And so we're really excited about where we've landed with welfare, but that's been the genesis and kind of the evolution of how I got into this space why I've become so passionate about solving this problem and where I'm at now. It's been less than a year of the whole kind of journey. Yeah, awesome and super commendable and, and honorable to do what you 
did in terms of moving quickly and taking action. I know that all of us were pretty much caught in shock, right? You're in New York City. I'm in San Francisco right now. And uh, yeah, just rewinding a year ago, I mean, it was very scary times, very uncertain times. And I think most of us often felt very helpless, like how could we help? And I know that we, we had started dabbling into donating product to frontline workers and all of that. But it sounds like you were you know, taking that one step further in terms of making a platform and infrastructure to do that at scale, right? Because we could, we were donating to folks that were inbound and small outbound and local operations, but it's very, very piecemeal, very small scale. And I think that's kind of the innovation on the nonprofit, on the philanthropy side that I think we need more in that space. It's like folks with business sense, with that kind of startup hustle, problem solving in a, admittedly, uh, it is kind of sad where it's like, this has been a food desert problem, food availability, food insecurity, something that has always been a perennial, I would say like maybe not the top three problem, but like it's probably a top five problem that people hear again and again and again. And a lot of effort and money and good effort has been spent there. And it's like, it is disconcerting. Just like when people talk about, you know, war on cancer or war on drugs, and it's like 20, 30 years and billions of dollars, like what are the results? And just as a, you know, trying to be results driven folks and scientists, like if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, it's not working probably try something else, right? Yeah, 100%. I think like that needs to be the approach. And again, this isn't speaking to the type of, like I mentioned, ethos and and the, the type of brand that we're building. And this is so exciting, building a familiar type of brand in the nonprofit space. It's never really been done before. But just again, really focused on the nuts and bolts of being a mass distributor of products to people in need, you know, when you look at the state of food pantries, it is very decentralized. It is a network of network of networks. It is dominated by Feeding America. Um, they're a network of food banks. These food banks are a network of food pantries and food pantries and soup kitchens. And there's all these different layers to it. And so when you're a brand engaging with Feeding America, you know, you're pushed to kind of usually the local food bank or the local food pantries. You know, it's very, you know, difficult to get product from from one side of the country to the other you know it's it's too many players involved and again the tracking and the accountability and understanding what type of impact you're having it's kind of non-existent and what we want to build is a holistic organization something that is responsible for sourcing fulfillment delivery customer acquisition customer experience all in one home Right now, we're starting in New York City. I have to frame this thing as a local New York nonprofit, but we have a national vision where we're going to have 12 different DCs across the country. We're going to have a whole massive kind of on-the-ground field marketing and customer acquisition team across all major metros. We're going to be able to reach into rural areas. You know, that type of approach, just full-on, full blitz to this. Now, kind of describing welfare, and why this is going to work and why we can scale this thing is important. We're a food subscription service for those in need. And we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. But we're framing this thing as a subscription service with products that we're going to be putting in a box delivered straight to the door. That is the big leap. That's the big innovation. No long lines, no brick and mortars, no anonymity where you just stand in line and you're just another name, another number in line. Like this is going to be structured like a Blue Apron, like a HelloFresh, where there's an ex a customer relationship team. There's an experience team. There is, even though we're always going to have a free tier on the bottom, we're always going to be offering a free tier of curated snacks and drinks. We are going to treat those people that are paying nothing like customers, not like families in need, not families that are insecure. We're going to treat them as customers that we're accountable to, that we have to follow through on our promises, not just uh, as someone that lines up on a Sunday and has to wait in line for three hours. So that is us melding this this kind of our approach to try to redignify this space and make it okay to ask for help and pairing it with a very efficient model and very efficient operation with a box that you could put on a truck and send anywhere. So that is how we're going to start this thing up. As a subscription service, we're going to start here in New York. We're sourcing better for you food 
snacks, drinks, and pantry goods, putting them in boxes and sending them right to the doors. And we think that's going to be a model that's going to prove successful. Yeah. And I just, when you're talking about the customer experience, and I think that just very much resonates with, I think, the lay understanding of the space where oftentimes you think of pity or a patronizing tone from uh, the charity towards the actual customers. And I think the expectations in terms of service, the expectations in terms of convenience, uh, the, the touch points and how people engage with their food, engage with their services. I mean, you're just really taking like a modern approach, a modern lens to it. So and I think in that lens, it's a refreshing, not just like, hey, I'm doing the same thing, but I'm like a younger, more cool, I'm going to slap like a cooler logo on it. No, you're, I mean, it sounds like you're actually fundamentally building a service with, yeah, I think redignifying is like an interesting way to put it, right? It's like, it is kind of like a weird potential social, social stigma if you're like waiting in a food line. Yeah, definitely. And just and just asking for help in general is always, you know, I don't care if it's about food or anything. Asking for help is tough. Raising your hand in a classroom and asking for some for the teacher to kind of really break that problem down in math class, it's embarrassing sometimes. And 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 I think that is the big opportunity here is that by building a brand that is cool and that has familiar design and sensibilities and talks to people in an uplifting way and focuses on what communities have versus what they don't have, which is the typical approach of nonprofits. They love talking about what non- what communities don't have. But, 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 you know, really kind of inputting some levity to this space and making it okay, kind of cool to be affiliated with this organization, we're going to be able to tap into a huge population of people that are technically food insecure, but aren't waiting in a food line or aren't on SNAP benefits. They're too embarrassed. And, and so, you know, there's this misconception that of those 50 million Americans that are food insecure, that every single one is waiting in a food line, a food pantry line, every single one is enrolled in SNAP, everyone's taking full advantage of the resources that are available. That is not true. We don't know the statistics, but we know that is not true. You go to a food pantry line, you have to look, where's guys, where's the men? You know, there's there's a there's a problem. There's a, a fear of going out and standing in a line for three to four hours. Then there's the whole other side of the equation where there's people that don't have the time to spend. Right. They're working back to back shifts and they can't do something like that. Think of the kid, think of their parents. I mean, yeah, totally. And then you get to the front of the food pantry line and it, the products are maybe there's not even anything left or they're inadequate. They're not enough. So. There's a couple things here that we're trying to solve for. We have to pick our battles where we're starting. I think in terms of the types of products, we've made the conscious decision to focus on packaged goods that are complementary, that are snacks and drinks, accessible things that are familiar, bars and drinks and, you know, some pantry goods for sure. But we're not going out there and trying to do produce or meals. We're taking that, that, the thing to go, that focus on healthy snacking, which we think is lacking in this whole approach. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new keto food bar and they're yummy, they're delicious. And I want to make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code Jeff Tang. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero, Jeff 10 for a 10% discount on the keto food bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread, we got chocolate chunk, and of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast. I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla as grab and go bars when I'm biking when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So these are certified organic. They actually are yummy. They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike like semic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors so they actually have flat glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially, it's a, a fasting mimetic 
but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. I think that just let's run the conversation a little bit where chronic nutrition, which or chronic malnutrition, I, would, I should say, is leading to a metabolic health crisis in our country where 88% of Americans have metabolic issues, a third of Americans are pre-diabetic, diabetic, 75% of us are opioid obese. And, you know, when I'm talking to folks in the national defense world, the national security world, literally, we don't have healthy young people being able to actually pass boot camp, right, from a very young age. And then the healthcare costs as you're going older and have cardiovascular disease, neurological disease, that is skyrocketing in terms of cost. And I think one of the key levers that we can actually employ to solve this is actual better day-to-day nutrition, right? Like that is essentially medicine daily that drives metabolic changes, that drives outcomes. And oftentimes it's overlooked as like, hey, just get something out of your local convenience store or bodega. And that's good enough from a snacking perspective. And oftentimes if you look at what's there, it is the most cheap, calorie-dense, processed, hyper-processed, high-carbohydrate, high-refined product that's like engineered to deliver the most addictiveness and most and at least satiable for their business model. So I think that innovation in terms of that hyper-processed, shelf-stable, low-nutrient-density food, I think, was an innovation to solve famine, right? Because again, as at the top of the program, we're talking about how famine used to be the biggest killer of humans, aside from war. We've mostly solved famine in the most parts of the world. And the calories are there in the world. It's just like literally a transportation and distribution problem now. I like how you talk about like it, it in terms of calories. I think it's a really, really interesting way to talk about it. Like there's calories out there. We need to get calories to the people instead of talking about it in terms of like weight of products or units or meals. It's like pure calories. Because, you know, when I think about a day, I just think about myself, you know, there is such a focus in food insecurity about meals, 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 meals. Let's just keep dumping produce on people. Let's keep dumping produce. When produce, when you go into a grocery store, first of all, SNAP is designed to make produce affordable um, or available at least. And produce actually isn't that expensive. It's the products that are very expensive. People think that, you know, like tomatoes and lettuce and onions are, are what's filling up that receipt on a day. It's actually not. It's the consumer packaged goods that add up. And, and if you want to buy quality, that's where you start to really see an increase in the price. But also snacking and packaged goods, those are the things that really kind of fill up a significant chunk of the day of what you're eating, of the calories. You know, the, the yogurts or the snack bars, the beverages, you know, mini meals. I think people, you know, nobody sits down. I don't care if you have money in your pocket or not. Nobody sits down and makes a full meal, three meals a day, every meal. Like it's a collection of snacking. And especially when you get to children, there's a lot of snacking. So why isn't there an emphasis on that space? Now, down the line, obviously, we want to become a comprehensive replacement to the food pantry model. We're going to have to bring in all sectors of the day, uh, the produce, the milk and dairy, the meats, the, the everything. We want to be very comprehensive there. But if we can own this space, especially when you're talking about kids or moms and dads that are running out and they can't sit down and go make a big breakfast, they can just grab a yogurt and maybe like a hummus cup or something quickly and they got to run out. That is going to be a big win. And I think getting kids comfortable with some of these tastes and, and some of these products that aren't so high sugar, high fat and high processed, that's what's going to start to, we're starting to plant the seeds in communities for it to flourish. We're not just dumping you know, bok choy and radishes on people and saying, you know, we fed you, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be a, a, a different approach to this thing. I agree. And I think it's, it's too much of a, uh, of, of an ideal to say, Hey, we expect to just give like produce to people and then expect people to do home cooked meals, three meals a day. And I think that I would, I would concede that that is probably optimal, right? Like to get healthy, whole produce, fresh meat, fresh dairy, fresh vegetables, fruits, all that good stuff, just like fresh from the farm, all organic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Like that would be the ideal world. Totally. But can't like how realistic is that? Right? Like I would say that I'm fairly, you know, privileged, well off, and fortunate, but I'm not I don't I can't have a personal chef cook me gourmet meals every single meal of the day, right? Okay, if you're a billionaire and, and you're in that class, okay, go hire your full, like, you know, your, your catering team to support you. But for the 99% of us, hey, you know, we're busy, we need to make a living, we gotta take care of our children, gotta, you know, do our job, do our side hustle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have to accept that. That's the new reality. There's a cultural element too as well. There's there's dishes that people like to cook. And I don't think that we should look down about it. Also, if you want to go run out and go to McDonald's and grab a burger, that's fine. I mean, like I, I don't understand this this whole like talking down to people as if you know, anybody who's outside of that socioeconomic bracket, everyone's eating perfectly fine and everyone's making three meals a day and not going to fast food at all. That, that's not the case. I think what we can do is create easy swaps where a kid goes into the, the kitchen, opens up the fridge, and there's a six-pack of yogurt in there. That's That changes. Or instead of a six-pack of Cokes, there's a six-pack of seltzers. Those types of changes. Now, it doesn't matter if you make the most nutritious salad for dinner. If you're you know drinking a, a high corn syrup product with it and having a, you know, like a chocolate bar after, it kind of renders the whole thing moot. So I think people should have the flexibility to do what they want with meals. And I think generally people, when you're cooking a meal, they generally turn out to be kind of healthy. I don't care if it's a big piece of meat, chicken, fish, meals tend to kind of lean healthy. It's usually a rice and a veggie and 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 a piece of meat. It's the snacking that I think is killing a lot of people. I think the snacking and the, and the beverages, that is the poison, not just in communities, I think everywhere. I think the bad snacking is, is really hurting people. Obviously going insane on a fast food run over and over and over is not doing good as well. But when I'm just talking day to day, filling up your pantry, you know, people are buying bad products and, and stuffing on them and it's, and to replace meals or just to kind of eat on and it's killing communities. And so we can introduce easy swaps that are familiar. We can get stuff into kids' hands that are familiar, that are a little different, but, you know, in a form factor that makes sense, a bar or something. And that's how we start to change this tune. Yep. I think that's, to me, is like the right model where I think in a lot of, you know, coastal elite cities, wellness is like a luxury item, right? It's like yeah. the luxury gym, you got the luxury wellness food and activity. And I think as a country, as a society to just be healthy and not chronically diseased moving forward like wellness needs to be just a default state and 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 it's not like okay we can just governmentally mandate this this is some self-responsibility of all of us to be educated be thoughtful about nutrition but i think it's also you know folks like yourself helping accelerate that education that distribution hopefully you know companies like ours like actually making better higher quality foods that actually match what we understand about modern physiology, modern metabolism. Totally. I think this is the, this is the opportunity. I think companies can only go so far marketing their product, unless they compromise in the product and make it cheaper and less healthy, but they can only go so far putting products, you know, good products into communities that just can't afford it. They can't go that far. They can't. And the same thing goes for subscription services and, you know, these blue aprons and stuff. It's bad business to market this thing to communities that cannot pay for it. So com- companies can only go so far. The government, forget about it. Uh, they're trying as hard as they can, but you know, SNAP is effective to an extent, but they can only go so far. There needs to be this, this game, this opportunity in the middle, this third rail. And obviously nonprofits have been around trying to tackling this thing, but operating kind of like a business we're introducing products and an experience and a service to neighborhoods that would never be marketed this thing because they just would not be able to afford it if we priced it accordingly. They just would not be. It's just the facts, whether you're in a city or you're out in the middle of the country, they would not be able to afford this and it would never be marketed there. So that is us going towards that democratizing of wellness. If there's product to be shared, and there's excess product out there, and there's brands that want to do good and make it a big cornerstone of their operation. We can be the destination and the service that takes in product and gets it to the people that need it most. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. It's been tried many times. It's obviously the pantry model, but 
it's just, it's not an experience that is rewarding or exciting. And it, you don't want to come back again. You're actually dread coming back. That's the opposite of what you want. Yeah. And I think I like how you are very metrics and results oriented. I think that is oftentimes when the downfall of a lot of philanthropic effort where it's like, you don't you know, like there seems to be like a shame or like over businessification or over economicization of like the nonprofit if you start measuring results. But to me, that's burying the head in the sand. And that's why I think when we heard about your organization, we wanted to work with you because, like, okay, you're not we're not just like throwing products or money or resources just to feel good and cover our own butt. No, no, like welfare actually has a model that's accountable. That's actually trying to drive results. And to me, I'd rather, I mean, it just, it just, what's right. It's, it's okay. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk how we're actually solving, not just like talking, having a nice conversation that just words. And we don't want to dig too much into the details, right? Like I'm a problem solver. I like measuring things. I'm an engineer, right? Like to, we got to measure the actual outcomes. And if it's just not what we see, then we got to fix it. Right. And I think that is a downside of, I think just a broader critique of the philanthropic space where it's like, people aren't ready to look at themselves in the mirror and actually measure their impact, right? It's like good enough just to like, I did it. And then I don't want to think about it until I'm here. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this kind of speaks to our approach with what we're building in parallel to the subscription service with our media, with welfare media, is that we want to tap into that and into this idea of kind of changing the tune around corporate philanthropy that for so long, companies just donate, they check the box, and that's it. And, and, and in, in return for donating, they get an asset of a kid holding a product, and, and then they put it on their Instagram, and then they move on to the next marketing project they got to do. And that is, I don't know, it's a toxic cycle of what's going on. Now, obviously, you know, access to product is going to be a cornerstone of what we're doing in partnerships and strong partnerships. But I think there's an opportunity here to do something that's a lot more thoughtful, that is obviously, and I keep coming back to it, a logistics streamlined operation where we can do it quickly and more transparently for brands so they know what's going on, but isn't exploitive of the people that we're serving. And instead of taking photos of our subscribing families, why don't we do something more elevated and tell your brand story in a more thoughtful way? Why don't we do something where you integrate into our storytelling online and do something like that where, you know, we can talk about, we can help brands amplify their support of us and amplify their social impact strategy and social impact goals, but not do it at the cost of the families we're serving because that starts to, you know, re-stigmatize the whole thing. You know, I, I think about a scenario of just, a, again, like say a little kid holding up a, a cup or a bar of something and a nonprofit's taking a photo of him. And the kid has no idea what's going on. He just has a bar and he's happy to have it. Behind the scenes, there are these big, big pillars of money that's shifting. You've got brand marketing departments. You've got that nonprofit's marketing team selling essentially that photo to a company and the company's using that photo to sell products that could stop. You know, I think it doesn't mean that I don't want to be a, a platform for brands to talk about what they're doing and to sell more products. That's fine. I get that, but not at the cost of the families. And I think by creating that type of structure, we're going to be the brands that align with us, it's going to say a lot more about the fact that they're working with us. It's going to show that there's a barrier to entry here. We're not here to just be a, a vessel of a marketing team. We're here to really do good work and to solve a problem. And the brands that are supporting us really do give a shit. And it's not just a free-for-all where anybody comes up, give us a, a couple pallets and we'll send you a photo. It, it really means that the brands are committed to being a part of this solution. And I think that's what we want to do with our media and our online operation is really create that new type of corporate philanthropy out there. You know, that's, that's the idea at least. Yeah, no, it just, it rings a lot of like the common critiques of like, you know, you, you, you take like a, some, like a high school student in America when a well-off family goes to Africa and, and, and plays around with some starving African children just for the photo op, right? Like, like, that, like that is the trope. Like I'm, you know, I, I know people, doing that are doing you know full, full earnestness and 
doing great work, but there's clearly a trope of like exploitative philanthropy, which is like kind of like a pseudo vacation Instagram photo shoot. And I, again, that, that is that stigma where it's like, Hey, I don't want to be an asset for your corporate <laughs> goals. Right. Exactly. And, and so, you know, kind of piggybacking off that a little bit, like with the media, what we're doing online is really cool too. Like, you know, not only with the, with the corporate partners, but just in general, not taking photos of the day to day and this doom and gloom kind of storytelling. What we're doing with welfare media is kind of creating this magazine, this magazine that's centered around the theme of nourishment and how to take better care of yourself. And see that, that is accessible to everyone, whether you've got money in your pocket or not, you know, Try, there's an appetite for that. There's an appetite to learn better, you know, how to value things, how to, how to, you know, feed yourself better. What are the foods that fuel you? And I think that allows us to expand the conversation, bring in everyone into our organization, create different types of touch points with welfare versus just us taking product and giving it to people that need it. It's you can interact with us, whether you qualify for the subscription, and you'd like to sign up. Or you want to follow us online to learn more about how to better fuel yourself and help to fuel other people as well. And, you know, I think in, in, in addition to that, integrating brands into the stories that we're telling, into the products that we're showcasing, the ingredients that fuel us and in teaching how people can better value things when they're at the grocery store and they're looking at something that's $1.99 and something that's $2.49. What do I do? I think there's a lot of opportunities to, to educate. And we're going to be doing that on the ground in our subscriptions and doing it online for the general public. Again, that is kind of a new path forward. I think, you know, what's interesting, I love always throwing this out is, you know, National Geographic is actually one of the largest nonprofits in the world. And you wouldn't know that from their content. You wouldn't know that from their storytelling. What they do is they make you look at the world and you know, see its beauty. I think that's so cool. And what they do behind the scenes is incredible conservation efforts around the world with the National Geographic Partners uh, Society. But they can create beautiful content that inspires people. It doesn't deflate you. It doesn't make you question your world. It doesn't mean that you can't call out the bad actors and the bad systems and you can't talk about climate change or bad, you know, polluters, but you can showcase the world more beautifully. And that's what we want to do with food. We want to showcase cultures. We want to showcase people and communities and not denigrate them. That's going to be our approach online. And we can easily integrate brands into that story as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a really great model and goal. Maybe shifting gears a little bit in terms of going back to the education piece and the outreach piece. I think one of the discussions, especially with the roots within the pandemic, the, the results and the data that's coming in, clearly some eth ethnic groups, some social economic classes are having worse outcomes than others, right? So to me, you know, the way I read the data is that certain ethnic groups have larger incidences of diabetes or obesity, or just poor metabolic health, or they are in tighter, closer family quarters where multi-generations are living together. So there's obviously just attributes that are more prone to worse outcomes of COVID that may be overlapping with, you know, the ethnic overlays, but not necessarily quote unquote, like racism on certain specific groups that, because I mean, COVID doesn't care if, you know, what race you are. No, but the, but the, your environment uh, will dictate what's, you know, who's being affected more. Exactly. So there's correlation with different ethnic groups with those types of patterns, right? So I'm curious in terms of as you're thinking about food education, food awareness, food distribution, is that, uh, you know, how are you looking at just the different marginalized groups, different communities? How are you tapping? And, and I know that like New York's like a great, you know, ground zero for this because, you know, really a super cosmopolitan, diverse city. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think our approach, and I talk openly about this, is that we want to look at this problem through the lens of poverty. We don't want to get distracted by other factors because we can. You can go down rabbit holes. And I think what with this problem, food insecurity in America and then hunger around the world, but really just food insecurity, it's universal. And definitely when you dive into data, you can see certain groups in certain settings are disproportionately affected more than others. But it doesn't, I mean, you know, across the country, no matter your age, no matter 
your race, your male, female, it, it, it affects everyone. It affects a lot of people. That 50 million number is a big number. And whether you're in Washington state or Florida or somewhere in between, like this problem is ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous in inner cities. It's out in the middle of the country. And so what we want to do in our approach is to look at this through the lens of poverty as the unifying factor. And we're obviously starting in New York City and the demographics that we're serving, it's, you know, 60% Spanish speaking. And that's going to change, though, when we go out to Western Arkansas, you know, things are going to change. But I think that there's a lot of power in unifying the story. And I think, you know, a single white mom in Texas with three kids that is struggling to figure out food for the family and a single black mom in downtown Detroit with three kids struggling to find, figure out the food for the family. I think there's a lot that connects right there. And I think divisiveness and looking at this through buckets, I think goes down that rabbit hole of not solving the comprehensive problem for everybody. And I think, you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to have our head. We're going to, it doesn't mean we're going to have our head in the sand. You know, the same thing with our name, the same thing with everything we do. We, we're fully conscious of what we're trying to build here. But I think what our goal is to be a national end-to-end organization that solves this problem. And I don't want to bucket people. And I, I want to unify people around this issue, whether you're affected by it or you're not affected by it. I think we need to be looking at this thing as a money thing. It's a money problem first and foremost. And that that's going to be the approach. I mean, obviously, when we're in cities, poverty looks a different way than it does out in the rural. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have just as much of an impact on a family. And so that's going to be our approach from day one. Let's unify. Let's not divide. Let's not bucketize people because we want to create something that is accessible to everybody, whether you're 85 years old or you're 18 years old or younger and you're in a family and you're struggling. We want this thing to be accessible to everybody. Love it. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you, you spoke about it you know, very, very articulately. I, I think maybe to you know, just continue to riff on it, I think when people start comparing kind of poverty Olympics and, and all of that, and just like, hey, everyone's got some issues. And I, I, it's so divisive when it's like, oh, X person has it worse. So therefore, start like dividing people and like ranking people. I mean, that's so antithetical of this hey, we're in this as a team together that support all of us, right? And I think think it really jumps the shark. Definitely. And I think it is not only a disservice to other groups that are affected by it, but it's unfairly branding one group. And I think we're talking in code right now, but we know what we're talking about. We know this unfair label of welfare queen. I mean, are you kidding me? This is insane that this thing has gotten to this point, that this stigma around this quite noble idea of, Asking for help and giving help. I mean, that is one of the bedrocks of the United States. It's right there in the Constitution providing for the general welfare. It's been branded as a certain type of person that's, that is uh, taking advantage of that. And I, what I want to do in my approach is I want to throw the whole conversation out the window, all of it. And I think that is going to create a lot of flexibility and, and a lot more accessibility to how we solve this thing. I don't want to talk about it at all. It doesn't mean behind the scenes we don't, you know, talk about it and figure out different solutions, especially as we scale. But I think I want to unify around this issue. I want to unify around the solution and not play, you know, these other games trying to layer other problems on top. Food insecurity, you mentioned it's maybe a top three, top five problem. I think it's the root of a lot of problems. I think the lack of access to healthy food is potentially the number one problem in this country. Everything floats off of it. Everything, whether it's crime or health or education or work, the infrastructure, all of it. If you don't eat for six hours, you get pissed off. That is a powerful problem that needs to be solved. And I think that's something that we can solve and we can do it more universally while still being, you know, while kind of reinventing the whole uh, language around it and and throwing out all the old legacy ways of looking at this thing. Yeah, let's unpack that more because I think that when I said it's like a top three, top five, I I think it's because there are other other problems that seem more vogue at the time, right? And I, I think it is actually a perfect segue, which is that the food availability, that food security oftentimes leads to so much developmental issues in children, 
right? If you just do not have a base on nutrition for healthy brain body development, how can that child succeed when they're in a, you know, competitive, you know, big world out there where there's a lot of, you know, people, you know, changing economy, changing times. Yeah, speak towards it. I mean, I think there is a real good argument that if people are just sickly and they cannot fully capture the potential, yeah, that is a, a, maybe a hidden cause, but like the root primal cause that's not obvious. 100%. I think that, you know, whether it is what we're starting with, with healthy snacking, but just really just the availability of nourishing foods and and the the awareness around how to better take care of yourself i mean there's just no hiding it the the communities the neighborhoods in cities and outside of cities that are the poorest eat the worst and have the worst health effects and those communities all kind of look the same you know again whether it's urban or rural the infrastructure is broken down the jobs there's not a lot of small businesses the schooling is failing it, it's a, it's a vicious cycle and being able to fuel up your body, that is what enables you to go to school for nine hours and be laser focused on your studies. It's what enables you to go to work, you know, and, and kick ass for 12 hours and, and come back and be able to power through. And, you know, it's like fueling up a car. You know, you have to put premium fuel into your car. You can't just put anything in there. You have to put a very specific type of, of fuel into that car. Um, to, to make it run as, as well as it can. And you got to put oil in it and you got to make sure everything's working correctly. You know, you could get that car down the road, but it, it's going to break down eventually. And so for us, I think looking at it as the basis of a lot of things that plague societies um, and plague communities from crime, terrible access to education, the health problems, terrible access to available health um, care, that all stems from this lack of access to reliable nourishing products. Yeah. And I mean, again, I wouldn't be spending a lot of my career in looking at the nutrition system if I didn't think very similar to you. I mean, I would abstract it and describe my thoughts in this way, which is that the things that compound the most is your daily intake, period. And that's both your information as well as your nutrition, right? And I think education is very important. If you can get people educated, that is a very compounding baseline for a, a child that turns into an adolescent, that turns into an adult, and a productive, contributing member of society, right? That education, that, that mental, intellectual input. And of course, like our bodies are physical vehicles, right? physical entities, physical carriers. And again, just in terms of all of our healthcare costs, a sixth of GDP is spent on fixing our broken bodies, which is oftentimes filled with poor fuel. And that's on the therapeutic side, right? It's like, Going to your point, you know, when I'm on point, great diet, healthy nutrition, yeah, you're firing, right? You can actually study. If you're just eating sugar and you're crashing, you're hyper and you can't like listen when you're, you know, sit down and, and study, how can that student maximize their intellectual potential, right? So I think that's where I think it's like, again, it does, it, I think it never has been like, hey, this is like, you know, I think the war on drugs or like the war on cancer and then pandemic. There's always like, I think, a new the public enemy number one. And I think I think we're speaking towards the same thing, which is that I think people kind of know about food deserts, kind of know about food security, but it's never been focused enough as like, hey, if we solve this root cause, a lot of these other other problems aren't going to be as uh, are, are much more alleviated, right? If you have a healthy baseline, maybe people wouldn't search for drugs from a uh, a mental health or a physical addiction perspective or a pain perspective. If you had a uh, healthy nutrition as a baseline, maybe there would be much less uh, incidence of cancer because there potentially is a metabolic root there. Uh, all of these other problems that are like number one public enemies have potentially a nutritional basis. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think about what we're doing is, you know, I, it's sometimes I talk about it just simply as food. But then we talk about it as wellness and nourishment. And I think that is what encapsulates, I believe, the three big pillars and something that, you know, when I look 10, 20, 30 years down the line that we can be involved in, which is food, education, and health. Those three things are so linked. Forget about everything else. Just those three things. If you can solve those three things and, you know, you can sit down and talk for days and days and days about the problems in those three sectors. And they're so intertwined, food, education, and health. We're going to start with food, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about education. We can't introduce interesting, accessible ways to learn more about not only taking better care of yourself, but taking better care of your community, taking better care of the, of the world, of your planet, 
you know, inspiring through education with the food as the forefront. And we know that the whole thing speaks directly to health and wellness and, and, and all that. But yeah, it's really, it's, we don't want to treat these things in silos. When we talk about this problem with just to come back to food insecurity, I think, you know, I, I mentioned it, I think earlier about these three problems, these three barriers to access to, to nourishing food. You know, it's at least the way we define it is affordability, accessibility, and awareness. And much like everything, those those three barriers are treated as silos. In organizations today, they talk about only one of those things at a time, if if even, you know, they're trying to solve one of those. They're trying to make food maybe free or more affordable, or some state governments try to create tax incentives for more healthy grocery stores to, to solve that food desert problem. Nobody's talking about awareness and education at all. That is what we can do. We can solve the nexus of those three barriers. It is That is what food insecurity is. You have to provide a better option that's more affordable, delivered more efficiently, and more thoughtfully with more awareness around it, more education that inspires. That is not only going to help us solve food insecurity, we believe, but but treating these issues within food and outside as a nexus, as an intersection of all these different things, not as individual silos, not as departments, Department of Health, Department of Education, Department of Agriculture. There needs to be a new way to rewrite how we solve and attack these issues that isn't so siloed off. Our lives are a collection of these different types of departments and they overlap every second of the day. You know, where I'm sitting right now is a amalgamation of four or five different things that is going on. And so to think that everything should be siloed off, whether you're talking specifically about food or or society and communities in general, I think is ridiculous. And I think that type of thinking we want to embed into everything we do. It's the intersection. Yeah, no. And I think just from my experience dealing with siloed organizations, I mean, it's even the best case that they're even being handled in the silo. I mean, I think they accept the case that no one even deals with nutrition at all in government anymore. Because it's yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, where does it actually sit? Okay, there's the FDA that regulates food labeling, and then there's Department of Health and Human Services that kind of looks at healthcare and insure, insurance and payers, and then there's education that doesn't even talk about nutrition at all. It's just like we got to get some calories on the table for our school lunches. So to me, it's there's like, the there's the USDA. No one, it's no yeah, it's no one's job. So it's not even like a siloed approach. It's like no one's even thinking about this as a serious problem. So totally. I, my, my question to you was, how can government help an organization like yours where, or or like you don't even want government intervention at this point because it's just going to mess things up and get too bureaucratic. And then maybe this follow-up question to that is that if you were dictator czar of food of America, you know, what would you implement? Whether that's evolving SNAP, you know, regulating or doing tax incentives. Let me throw all of that to you. I would say governments, and this is where we know we can get to, governments cut the check and and get out of the way. And we, we will be able to take over a lot of these different programs. Now, look, I'm talking quite like ambitious. And, you know, we're just right now a New York nonprofit trying to get off the ground. But, you know, what is doing anything, if not for having ambition to look forward to look at the vision. So, you know, I think that's where we can be on a local, a state, a federal level is cut the check and get out of the way. And we're going to deliver an incredible experience that's more cost effective than what you're doing, that helps more people. And that's going to be our approach with governments. Um, I don't want to get into the nitty gritties about these types of things where we can shift these little problems and shift percentage points up and down. Just out of the way, just cut the check and we'll solve it. I think that's, you know, it could be a little narcissistic, but let's see. That's where that's the goal. Let's get to a point where it's like that. I think in terms of holistic solutions, you know, putting on that hat where you can kind of create, you know, national solutions that, you know, are just quite quickly, but the snap of the finger. I think that at the end of the day, healthy food is too expensive. And I think there's a lot of players in the life cycle of the process from whether it's the farm or the manufacturer to the distributor to the the retailer. There's a lot of people taking a little bit too much of a cut. <laughs> and I think that cut is coming down to the consumer. It, it trickles down to the consumer. I think there's an opportunity to have an at-cost grocery store 
that's nationwide online that doesn't penalize brands for innovating and creating better products, but takes over the distribution part and the retail part. And we charge 1% or something like that. So brands can still come out, go out and innovate, but we're not going to take a 40, 50, 60% cut of that fair market value and then pass that on to the consumer. People are priced out of eating healthy stuff. I don't know how we can have a conversation about solving this problem without getting to the crux of it, which is healthy food is too expensive. Forget about even if it's available and it's right down the street, even if you know the yogurt is better for you, if it's too expensive, you can't pay for it. So that's kind of one of the things I think about. I think about grocery stores. I think about the insane cut that they take. I think about how inefficient the whole model is and the reason why they have to take 35, 40% and how distributors have to take what they need to take. Well, what happens if we take over those two sectors? We minimize the, the percentage we take. And we offer it exclusively to individuals that qualify for it. And we have maybe a shifting scale or something like that. But that's what I think about. I think about making better food more accessible while still empowering the brands and the companies that are inventing all these new things and isolating these proteins and, you know, really inventing new ways to nourish yourself. Don't strip brands of that. Don't penalize companies. But I think we can be more efficient and more cost effective in how we sell food. Yeah. I, I mean, I like your kind of market approach and market thinking to it, which is that let, let kind of, let the market kind of compete. And then in terms of the distribution costs, if there is a way to subsidize whether through tax to lower distribution cut, cause it is, it is pretty interesting how that model works, right? Like we manufacture food. Yeah, typically, you know, each layer of that distribution stack takes the 30, 40%, if not more. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like the thing that would have cost literally a quarter is marked at 4X once it gets to your Whole Foods or your 7-Eleven. Yeah, why? I mean, and then, and then people are priced out and then they can't buy it. And the brand, if they could truly do direct to consumer, not, you know, direct to consumer through a warehouse and has to do a million different things. But if you could just sell it, purely wholesale to somebody and the brand makes their their cut it it just it changes the game i mean there's a lot of players in the middle that are pricing things up and making food healthy food inaccessible and i think that can be attacked later and you know for now it's taking advantage and and trying to win the game that we can win right now which is this epidemic for lack of a better word of short-coded short close to expiration product that is very difficult for brands to find a home for or mislabeled product or just excess, you know, stuff that was earmarked for field marketing and you got to find a home for it. Like becoming the destination for that stuff, that is a coup. There's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of great, perfectly fine inventory. So before we get into, you know, trying to really break the whole kind of big food cycle and, 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 and retailers, I think if we can figure out that Crack that nut right there. I mean, we're talking millions of units every quarter. Yeah, this is looking at like a stat before we jumped on that some 40 million tons of food are just wasted, thrown away. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. And how? How is that possible? Because these organizations have been around for 40 years. I thought that was the problem that we are funding them to solve. You know, the numbers are the same. Every year, it's the same 40% of food is tetas. You would think that, the, you know, no one's been trying to solve it. And it's like, okay, we've identified the problem. Let's go out and create a solution now. No, these organizations and the governments have been trying to tackle this thing. And I'm not the master of the universe here. I'm not saying I know how to solve this thing and nobody else does. But what it takes is discipline. And it takes a, a comprehensive end-to-end solution because there's no way we can survive with that much product being tossed into landfills and oceans. This is insane. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's almost calculated into the business model where it is you write off half of your inventory, which would be nuts to any startup person. Literally half of your inventory is like going get going and thrown away. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is the time to say, hey, fresh eyes to actually try to solve the problems with modern tools, modern technologies, right? Because like the tools that we have today with internet distribution local warehousing, like all, all that stuff that might not have existed 10, 20 years ago or 40, 50 years ago when some of these new society type programs were implemented, a lot has changed in terms of how we access product and how we can distribute product now. So 
yeah, I think literally even just solving that waste, it's like literally a doubling of cost of goods. That is like, like any 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 business person like looking at that P and L is like, damn, what the hell is going on? Yeah, and and you and that you have. You have to overproduce. You have to. I mean, there's just, and then, you know, different things come up and different, like, like a COVID situation where you have a huge amount of product that was earmarked to go out and orders are canceled and things change and markets close or open up. And so brands have to over manufacture. It's just the nature of the business. Some brands can run tight, but you know, they're usually quite smaller. They're in that million to $5 million range where they can run really cl- tight. And, you know, the demand is outpacing the supply. But, you know, typically across the board, I see a lot of extra product that's sitting around. Yeah. And to me, that's we got to get better inventory planners and just better predictability because yeah. it should be a solved problem. In, in, in something like that, like the inventory planner messed up, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, we think people wanted, I don't know, avocado chips or something and no one wants it. So, What's the best way for our listeners to get involved or support? So I know that we're, you know, I, I know that I just like talking to Max, who's sending over $10,000 worth of product to you guys. I think you're just according to the pickup. So we're super excited to support. And I think, again, just from your thoughtfulness and metrics driven approach at Welfare, I think that is exactly the types of folks that we want to align ourselves with. Let's actually solve the problems in a thoughtful way and not just do this for the lip service to feel good, to do our quote unquote corporate feel good deed of the year. Totally, totally. And I think, you know, at this point where we're launching, we're launching, we're kicking off in Brooklyn. We're going to be creating this template of how we activate new zip codes and new neighborhoods and copy and pasting across New York quite quickly and then expanding out. And, you know, what we want to do is we don't want to be asking individuals that care about us, you know, contribute 10 bucks, please, and feed a family of four. That transactional nature of, of philanthropy, we can elevate that as well. I think at this point, like the best thing people can do is definitely go to Instagram at our welfare, W-E-L-L-F-A-R-E, follow along there, because what you're going to start to see right now, we're talking about, you know, we're really focusing on you know, a lot of the issues and and describing the problem. But over time, we're going to be really opening up the conversation. And I think just on an individual level, I think this is going to be an incredible resource for people. It's going to be really cool, accessible and interesting. And, you know, our goals are to inform, inspire and transform people. And it starts with this storytelling we're going to do online. And then over time, I think we can galvanize people behind our vision and what we're doing and open up volunteer opportunities and open up different ways that people can participate. I think right now, all it is is as simple as following us on Instagram and knowing that we're not just being cute and trying to solve food insecurity through a post or through a like. We've got a logistics operation that's going to be quite expansive in no time on the ground offering this subscription service. But I think that's a great way for people to kick off the relationship with us. Follow us, check out what we're talking about, and then over time, you'll see really interesting opportunities pop up to get more involved on the film, film, uh, philanthropic side. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Again, thanks so much for your service and leadership here. A lot of just shared alignment in terms of how we think about, again, just the, the, the modern nutrition system, but also just how critical this problem is for just the, the culture, long-term health of our country and, and eventually around the world, right? So, you know, we'll, we'll stay in touch because I think that, We'll continue to figure out how to tackle this problem together. 100%. And again, I wanted to thank you and HVMN for getting involved really from the get-go on this because this is exactly the type of products, you know, whether it's bars or powders or whatever it may be that you guys are providing. But, you know, these types of categories, this is what we're going to get into people's hands that are going to really nourish and fuel people up. And I really appreciate your partnership right out the gate. I know that we can be working together, not just for, you know, right now, but as we grow, you know, the partnership can grow. And I'm really, really excited about this. You know, we've got a massive community of brands, you know, partnered with us. But, you know, you guys came in like right at the start. You're like, let's go. Let's send product. Even before I think we even came up with the organization name and the vision, the brand book, the team was like, we want to be involved in some capacity. So I really appreciate your support, partnership and conversation today talking about what we're trying to build here. And it's all going to work because we got brand partners like you guys helping us out with product. Absolutely. So we'll keep in touch and we'll definitely need to do a part two this, for this conversation 
as we push the ball forward here. Again, Cole, uh, honored to be a partner with you guys. And, and uh, yeah, keep, keep up the good fight. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, this is Jeff with HVM here. If you like this podcast, check out my new favorite podcasting app called Shuffle App. Use Shuffle to find your favorites from this episode. Post on Twitter and Instagram and tag us at HVMN. And the best clip will win a free variety pack of a brand new keto food bars. They're great. Super keto compliant, certified organic, tastes delicious. Check out keto food bars and check out Shuffle.